welcome to the Biohacking Beauty Podcast. I welcome you to another episode. Thank you for tuning in. My guests today are the biohacker babes, Lauren Sambotaro and Renee Bells, who are amazing sisters that are really, you know, bringing a lot of education and motivation to the biohacking space. They have their own podcast that is called the Biohacker Babes, but they are much more than that. They are health entrepreneurs. Renee is a certified nutrition consultant and holistic lifestyle coach. Uh, she has a master's degree in nutrition. And uh, Lauren is a Broadway performer, and she's also a corrective exercise specialist and functional health coach. Today, we are going to really talk about the fundamentals of, of health and biohacking, basically, on you know, how do we translate what we know or read about or get educated on into real-life actionable procedures. In this episode, you will learn about nutrition that leads to good health and, and, and habits. You learn about working out and movement. And you'll mainly learn how to incorporate your interest in a healthy body and obviously leading to a healthy, good-looking skin, how to incorporate it with a full life that requires our attention in other, you know, to other topics and areas, but how do we prioritize feeling good and eventually also looking great? And before we dive into the podcast, it would really mean the world to me and to us here at uh, Young Goose at the, and the Biohacking Beauty podcast. If you took a few seconds and subscribed to the podcast, it, of course, doesn't only ensure that you will not miss an episode, but it also helps us grow the podcast, uh, grow the, listen, the listener base, and make sure that other people enjoy the content as well. And last but not least... I would like to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by Young Goose, which is the world's first biohacking skincare company, which I'm the co-founder and CEO of. And what we're trying to do here at Young Goose is take the latest, the, the cutting edge of longevity and anti-aging science and bottle it up into products that you can use easily, safely, and effectively, obviously every day in order to increase the, the biological ability of your skin to repair itself, to look better, to perform if, there, if it is under stress. But in the end, obviously, to give you the best results skincare can give for your skin. Uh, so without further ado, please welcome Biohacker Babes. So uh, first of all, welcome, ladies. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Yeah, yeah we're excited we're, for this conversation. Yeah, me, me too. I'm, I'm very excited for it because as, as we kind of talked off air, the problem, the problem with uh, a podcast dealing with biohacking in general is that we can get a little, you know, technical or into the weeds and it can be overwhelming as far as, okay, now I even have, you know, 10 things that I need to do each day. But really, how do I juggle that and living my life, going after my personal aspirations, whether it would be work, kids, traveling, whatever that is, but still juggle that with healthy living. So 
I believe you guys are amazing examples for it. And in general, I, I, I think you have a lot of experience in, in showing other people how to do it. So that, for that, I'm very excited to have you. And also in general, because you're, you're very inspir inspirational ladies. Thank in you. Thank you so much. So you have a, basically a brand called Biohacker, Biohacker Babes that has a podcast that is very enjoyable to listen to. And, and so how did you ladies start with that? Like, what's your, how did your journey lead you there? Yeah, so we're two years apart. And when I graduated high school, I'm two years older and I left for college. That was sort of the last time that we had lived together. So that was 20 years ago. And um, our health journeys were very different. Our paths were very different, but we kind of circled in uh, divergent ways and came back together and realized that we both really are passionate about very similar topics and perspectives. And since we live across the country from each other, Renee is in Vegas and I am in New York, but I'm actually in Maryland. So I'll just say East Coast, <laughs> depends on the day. We thought that doing a podcast, which is a virtual recording, is the best way for us to collaborate because we do have similar I wouldn't say opinions because it's always important to have differing opinions, but we share a similar approach to health and wellness. And I think that is through the biohacking lens of being really curious about doing our own N of one experiments and just being open to all possibilities and knowing that we are dynamic beings, that things change from day to day, from year to year, we are evolving as a species. And it's really important to stay present with that evolution. So that also goes to say we really enjoy working together. So we decided the podcast would be the coolest way for us to collaborate and check in with each other. So I am very grateful that she is my sister and also my best friend. We happen to get along very, very well. And we also have very different strengths. I'm definitely more in the feminine creative. She, not that she's more masculine, but she's very structured and organized and keeps me in line. So it ends up being a, a very, very good partnership. Understood. That's, you know, that's an awesome way that, that we can connect nowadays, right? Like engage in a creative pursuit, which other people enjoy as well, and kind of, kind of have that as, as the connection. So what are some of the topics that you guys, that you ladies talk about on a regular basis? What is, what, what do you think you agree with more or uh, where do you differ? Oh, that's a good, good question. I mean, I think we always come back to root cause medicine, I would say, you know, we have a lot of training more on the functional medicine side of things. So as far as working with clients, it is always getting to the root cause of whatever their health issue is. And we see everything from gut issues, chronic fatigue, autoimmune conditions, you know, quite the array of issues, but always getting back to that root cause and always starting with the foundational basics of health optimization, biohacking, whatever you want to call it. You know, we, we talk about this a lot, how biohacking the word itself, I think everyone has their own definition of it. And that's wonderful. I think it's a great opportunity for us to explore what it means. And so I think, again, getting back to the basics, right? Are people getting outside? Are they eating real food? Are they getting their feet on the earth? Uh, we really prioritize that in our own lives, but also with our clients and then our podcast listeners is almost like more of an ancestral hacking piece. I know mm -hmm. that's kind of a trendy term now. And and I think like Lawrence said, the curiosity piece that really stems way back from when we were kids, because growing up with our dad and mom, they're both very into holistic health. We call our dad the OG biohacker because he was doing a lot of these biohacking kind of things back in the, I would say, early 80s. He had a PEMF mat. He had a red light, 
uh, low level laser therapy, infrared sauna, vibration plate. He had all this stuff in like the early eighties. So we grew up with that. And although as kids, we weren't, maybe weren't super interested in it at the time, but it, it almost like it set up our subconscious to then be open to it in our twenties. When we went off on our own, started exploring more in the health optimization space. So the curiosity piece and always asking questions, I think really stemmed from our childhood and that we see eye to eye on that for sure. Interesting. You know, from what you're saying, something that kind of bubbled up is first of all, the people that you see, you know, a lot of people who start any kind of health journey, I, I think probably 90 people of the uh, 90% of the people I met uh, had some acute health issue that they wanted solved. And then maybe they've through solving it or de- dealing with it really went down that rapid hole of, of biohacking. And honestly, yeah, everyone has their own definition of biohacking, but I feel a lot of the times that word, you know, corresponds with making sure results, you know, are achieved, right? Like basically the difference between this and wellness is maybe wellness is a softer word and biohacking is a more, from lack of a better term, like a more aggressive word that forces the body to go a certain way, or we're going to use tools to force the body a certain way. So, so that is what normally I meet, but from, from what you were saying, your journey is a more, maybe more all encompassing journey of looking at things that contribute to health and kind of resonating with them just from an optimized health point of view? Or did you have some kind of acute problem that you wanted to treat first and foremost? Yeah, we both had different health journeys. I'll share the highlights of mine real quick. In my early twenties, I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome traditional medicine didn't really have any answers for me. They just said I needed to sleep more, but I was sleeping 12, 13 hours a night. And, you know, when they didn't give me an answer, I wasn't going to just take that at the age of 22. So that's what made me a biohacker. I kept researching. I ended up figuring out that I had, well, I had mono. So I had Epstein-Barr virus reactivation. I had mercury toxicity. I had HPA axis dysfunction, just I think from being overly stressed all through high school and college, I was burning the candle at both ends. So it was like one thing after another. And then finally the the pinnacle was when I got mono and I was down for the count for like a year. And I think it, it totally sucked. I'll be honest. It totally sucked. Right. But I have learned a lot through the journey. And now I think I can sympathize with people that feel that way. When you have that underlying fatigue all day, every day where you don't want to do anything with your life. Like nothing excites you. Nothing really makes you happy because all you want to do is sleep. And I had this debilitating brain fog where this is, I think anyone with brain fog can maybe resonate with this, but I had it so bad some days where I wasn't even sure if my name was Renee. Wow. I had to like second think that wait, that's my name, right? I mean, it was like the cloud had just taken over my brain. So anyways, I can totally understand how people feel when they're going through some kind of chronic illness. So for me, yeah, it was hitting rock bottom and digging my way out and discovering what puzzle pieces I needed to put together in order to optimize my health. And now I'm healthier at 35 than I was at 25, but the health journey doesn't end. I'm still like, well, how can I sleep more efficiently? How can I work out harder and recover faster? to take nootropics, to up-level my brain, right? I'm always looking for 
the next piece of the optimization, which is fun for me. I enjoy it now. Yeah. That was my long, long story long. <laughs> no, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. That's, that's the maybe journey I, I, I uh, went through as far as like, I shouldn't be feeling that bad. I, I shouldn't be having that hard of a time concentrating. I shouldn't be, you know, having injuries that don't heal as fast, you know, or, or at all, or that fast. And through getting, resolving those issues, I just got hooked into higher performance or whatever. So yeah, Lauren, what about you? How did your, you know, journey into, uh, into demanding optimized uh, performance, you know, how did it happen? I think it comes back to the curiosity and I just always wanted to feel better. I had my own story of crashing and burning. I lived in New York where there's just this energetic pace that is so fast. that it's just difficult for any human to keep up with. Uh, I don't think you realize how fast you're going energetically. Your nervous system is just on overload. And I was performing in a Broadway show. I was teaching dance cardio. And at the time, I think we were in the mindset, at least in New York City, that more is more is better. And especially as like a young female dancer, performer, fitness instructor, like why should I not be able to perform 100% every day, seven days mm-hmm. a week? And so I was falling victim to expectations from others. And so I think that was really cloudy for a moment, feeling like I'm letting other people down. So it didn't matter what my body was saying. It was like I had to live up to their expectations. So that all goes to say, it lets me to crash and burn. I had to take some time off. And in my time off, I was like, well, I am a learner. I'm not just going to sit here and watch TV. So I'm going to take a course. And I was already personal training and health coaching, but I, I started a functional diagnostic nutrition course. And I feel like it was a gift from wherever I started learning about lab testing. And through the course, I had to do my own lab testing and found out that I had what was called at the time, adrenal fatigue. And that had just, that concept had never been introduced to me. Like, what do you mean that you can exercise too much? Like that just had never been digested in my being that exercise could be a bad thing. It sounds ridiculous to say that out loud now because burnout is just so common. We talk about recovery. Everyone's talking about, you know, resting and self-care, but that just wasn't a thing back then. So it gave me a real gift and opportunity to, like Renee said, put the pieces together for myself and realize that my body had the intelligence, my, my body had the intuition about what was best for me. And I had to stop listening to everybody else. And I had done that many times in my 20s. I was very vulnerable to other opinions, trends, information. I became vegetarian because everyone around me was doing it. That did not work for me. I got really sick, tired. I was getting injured all the time. But at the time I was like, I'm eating so healthy. This, you Mm -hmm. know, that can't be the reason why I'm fatigued all the time. It just can't possibly be. And, you know, I'm not saying everyone's journey through eating vegetarian or vegan would be this, but the second I ate meat again, it was like my life force just came back online, like so fast. And so it was just like these little gifts and opportunities. It was like, okay, I have a different equation. I have a different puzzle than anybody else in the world. And that is okay. And so it was constantly like looking in the mirror, reflecting back and saying like, what's working for me? How do I feel regardless of what anyone else is doing, saying, preaching, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, the functional lab testing was a really big reveal for me, being able to look at biomarkers and see 
what's happening inside my body. And that's before we had wearables and a lot of data quantification and this whole realm of like gathering metrics because our conscious mind only lets us feel so much. And like Renee and I hear this all the time from clients. How's your sleep? Oh, my sleep's good. Well, let's look at your sleep stats. Oh no. You know, it's like, we're pretty resilient, which is an amazing survival strategy, but the data can tell another story and can help us like unwind all of this, all of these walls. And like this, I don't want to say it's like fake resilience, but you know, we're always trying to survive and we can, like, we're, we're very resilient as a species. So, um, the biohacking and being able to uncover that through lab testing, wearables, what have you was like, just really mind blowing and just opened up a whole nother world's possibility for me. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, yeah, we are very resilient as, as species. We definitely as a species to get where we, we are right now, we had to go through, you know, famine through, uh, journeys from one place to another. We had to have a body that can take its, its genetic load that it needs to pass on and survive a lot and still be viable to some extent. Mm-hmm. But thankfully, I believe that we're at a, at a place in history where that can be looked at and maybe, and that's part of, of what biohacking is, right? Kind of separate it from what is a, a, a survival mechanism that you know, is really here for our next generation just to pass our genetic load and what is conducive to a happy, healthy, optimized way to live our lives, right? And a lot of the times, you know, the mental game we're playing with ourselves, whether we are repro- uh, like pre-programmed to do that, whether we live in a society that demands a lot from us, whether we demand a lot from ourselves, it can tap into those resources that we might not need or should use if we really want to live a optimized life. So do you, do you have any kind of theory as far as, you know, how much a person person needs to work? How does a healthy life look like? You know, obviously we're talking in the United States. We all live in the United States. If we were in Italy, Spain, wherever, it's very customary to stop for two hours in the middle of the day and just, you know, rest. We would get a, you know, a response that's fit, that's fit to that area. Here in America, resting, I feel like sometimes it's considered weakness, right? Yeah. So, how do how do you feel about what is optimal as far as like work leisure balance? I think it's different for every person. So that's why you have to reflect the mirror back at yourself and say, what's working for me? Some people do, Renee and I were just talking about this yesterday on a podcast. Some people do really well with a really solid, intense, long workout in the morning. That doesn't work for me. I do better with movement snacks, doing a little lighter in the morning and then increasing maybe later in the day. You know, and the only reason I can discern that is experience and listening to my body. So, you know, we don't have answers for everybody. I think only you have the answers for your body. So it comes back to the curiosity, constantly asking questions and knowing that the answer to the question is probably going to change next year in 10 years because we're dynamic beings, because we're always evolving. So I think it's just really important to continually be curious. And I think it's so fascinating as health practitioners, we both experience this all the time. Like we have health challenges still. And it's like, oh man, another thing. But you know what? It's an opportunity. I always think like my pain teacher, when I have pain in my body, it's my teacher. It's teaching me something. It's telling me this is something that you need to listen to and learn from. 
Like what a beautiful gift. Of course, we don't want to be in pain. It's annoying. And like pain is distracting. I know for me, my brain doesn't work if I feel pain, but it's also such an amazing learning opportunity. And I think a lot of us, yeah, as you said, we consider rest to be weak or we consider like not being productive to be weak or not getting something perfect to be weak. But life is a practice. Life is a ceremony. And like there is no perfect ever. It's all a practice. And the learning is what's so beautiful about that. And now I've gone off on and on and on. I don't even remember your original question. No, that's 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 a great that's a great point you're you're raising, which is which is you can only learn what is the right balance for you through curiosity and, and kind of what what is interesting to me in what you said is that obviously first of all starting a new journey or like having changes is a little bit daunting it's, it's a little bit obviously you're, totally. you're you understand that mistakes can happen so what are and we also understand that we have ego involved and other things and we can't just rely on intuition which a lot of times is spiked with like programs that are running in our head, right? Like pre-programmed stuff. So what are some of the mechanisms that you ladies use as far as maybe having guides to your curiosity, right? What do you look at, test for, et cetera, in order to determine your balance as far in optimizing your health and other people's? Yeah, I, I think number one thing that people can start tracking is heart rate variability or HRV. This has been a game changer for me to discover the ideal workday, fitness plan, when I eat, how much stress I can handle, being able to see my HRV throughout the day or even overnight and then checking it in the morning. I can really see what that one hour high intensity workout is doing to me the next day. You know, and I mean, I've been tracking HRV for four years, so I have been able to tap into some of that intuition like, oh yeah, I can feel my HRV is low today. Let me check it. It is low, but it takes time, you know, a couple months, couple years of tracking to really be able to listen to your body at the same time and match those up. But the whole like go, go, go mindset, like I said, I mean, my high school, college years, I was sleeping four or five hours a night. I totally believed in that, you know, sleep is for the week, you know, how many, how many credits can people. I do? What was that? Or dead people. Yeah. I'll sleep when I'm dead, all that. Yeah. How many credits can I do while working full-time superwoman? But anyways, come full circle. Now I meditate or even maybe nap every afternoon. And I, I know it took me a while to be okay with that. But what I learned was not only does my HRV improve, but I feel better. I can think clearer. So for anyone that is finding that like 2 to 5 p.m., they're just kind of sluggish, they're not as focused, not as energized, maybe try a 20-minute nap or meditation or breath work after lunch and be okay with that 20 minutes of, some people would say it's unproductive, but I'm going to say it's productive because you will find the rest of your day, your brain's on fire, you're fueled up. Maybe you can actually go to the gym and do that workout after work. You can get home, play with the kids right? So just being okay with taking a couple minutes back to focus on yourself, you're going to be able to put more out into the world. Mm-hmm. But that mindset shift was hard for me. I didn't want to be like the girl that takes 20 minutes after lunch to take care of herself. I was embarrassed by that. Now I'm proud. I'm like the queen of napping and meditation. <laughs> yeah. I also just want to say like with sleep, I think there's this big idea around wake up times. Like if you're not waking up at 
4 a.m., 5 a.m., getting up and seeing the sunrise every morning. Either you're not a true biohacker or you're not optimizing at your full potential. Well, there's a lot of studies that show that if you're waking up too early so that you can do that morning workout, you'd be better off sleeping because you're probably going to fat burn a little bit more than skimping on the sleep. So I'm not saying like, don't be that early morning riser, but maybe you, you don't have to be that early morning riser. We all have different sleep chronotypes. We all have different needs. And so like, what's good for you. And if you're getting that feeling of like shame, guilt, fear, question that, like, where is this coming from? Where is this a construct from society or family friends, putting this pressure on me to be something that, you know, is not resonant with me. For sure. And, and, you know, it's crazy how many brownie points you, you, someone gets for waking up at 4 a.m. Like I can function at 4 a.m. and be productive, which is another issue. But in uh, and, and not getting brownie points, you know, in, as far as they, they concern themselves or the environment, about like getting non-sleep depressed, like meditation or, you know, obviously, or napping in the, in the afternoon, which is linked, studies has linked more you know, optimal performance to that than to waking up at 4 a.m., you know? So that's, that's very interesting. And obviously there is the, the, the famous story of uh, the two people chopping wood. One just chops wood all day. The other stops once in a while to sharpen their ax. And obviously the guy who sharpened their ax uh, has, has, has gotten through more wood at the, in the end of the day. So for, for sure, us as a, as a, yeah, us as a society, we kind of need to learn you know, how do we even reach our optimal point? And that's why I believe the word optimal is encompassing so much, right? Because it's individual and kind of hard to get if we try to just superimpose the same paradigm on everyone. I wanted to take a quick break for this episode to chat with you about our Young Goose skincare product and our special offer for our podcast listeners. Our products are the world's first biohacking skincare products. And what they aim to do is to reboot uh, your skin cells to a youthful state so they can correct the cellular damage that is accumulated over time. Our favorite products and the one that we recommend everyone to start with are is our care concentrated moisturizer that can be used as both a day and a and the night cream. What this product is really specially delivering to the skin is our NAD precursors that are nano-sized and lipolized. They are both NR and NMN. And what they aim to do is to fuel the repair processes that our skin engages in by activating also our sirtuins, which are our anti-aging genes or our longevity genes that are responsible for DNA repair and basically repairing who we are really as human beings. In order to do that in the most effective way, we combine it with our enhanced resveratrol, which is fermented resveratrol that allows resveratrol to be 50 times more bioavailable in the skin and actually non-toxic because most people don't know that resveratrol is actually toxic for the skin since the skin doesn't have the enzyme to break it down like our gut does. So by fermenting the the resveratrol and introducing the enzymes in the fermentation process, we can obviously make it non-toxic and 50 times more bioavailable. And Care Concentrated Moisturizer also has 10 more active ingredients that support those processes, such as CoQ10, PQQ, two forms of vitamin C, 
and even turmeric and B vitamins. This is the first product we recommend. The second is eye care, which is a version of care specifically for the eyes. It also contains our NAD precursors and also contains very, very advanced peptides, our proprietary complex that includes GHKCU, a copper peptide that is very famous for its anti-aging abilities. The third product we recommend is our ProCare Serum. And that is a very special serum because it interacts with the mTOR pathway, which is a pathway that is very famous for its ability to affect how we age. So this product does a few things, but really what it does, it eliminates senescent cells, which are cells that harm our skin because our skin couldn't clear them very well. So it eliminates those, regenerates the skin. It stimulates the mitochondria with lilac uh, cell culture extract. And it also has a very strong and effective form of vitamin C that is well known to help the skin regenerate itself. Combining these three products by first applying ProCare, then eye care, and then care will give you the best results you've ever experienced for your skin and that we guarantee. If you would like to try these products, you can head over to younggoose.com to our website. And when checking out, please use the promo code PODCAST20 in all capital letters in order to get 20% off your first purchase. Again, head over to younggoose.com and use promo code PODCAST20 in all capitals for 20% off your first purchase. And now let's get back to the podcast. Mm-hmm. So maybe, you know, do, do you ladies find out that you have a lot of, because you are family, you are sisters, do you have a lot of genetic similarities as far as things that work for you? Yes and no. <laughs> yeah, yes and no. It's really a good mix of things. I mean, even just like our sleep chronotype, I'm a bear, Lauren's more of a dolphin. Um, not that that's necessarily genetic, but that's an interesting thing. So she's a lighter sleeper. I'm a heavier sleeper. We tend to sleep better at different hours. I nap well. She doesn't. What else? Blood sugar. We're we're pretty similar. Like we both definitely need good, healthy protein, good, healthy fats, no refined carbs, no refined sugars, things like that. But I think Lauren, you can tolerate maybe a little bit of fruit better than I can. There's definitely a couple little differences in diet. I would say that our biggest difference is she loves hot. I love cold. (laughs) Yeah, that's a big one. She's a sauna girl. And I was just visiting her in Vegas last weekend. And we were tired because we hung out and we're off our schedule a little bit. And to recharge, Renee went in the sauna. And to me, that sounds like torture. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, do you want to come in with me? You were like, I can't think of anything worse to do right now. (laughs) No, but like, this sounds silly, but my mitochondria were like, nope, that's not going to be good for you right now. (laughs) And I felt amazing when I got out of there. That's, that's very interesting to me. I I definitely resonate with, with Lauren more. I, uh, to me, an ice bath would be a go to any day of the week in in contrast (laughs) to, to um, a sauna, which would mean, which for me is just torture. So how do you, what are, what are some of the tools that you like the most as far as self quantification, as far as getting measurements that we can follow and adjust our, our, our habits according to. Here goes the rabbit hole. You go, Renee. (laughs) Well, maybe start with the topic of sleep. I think everyone should have a sleep tracker. Like Lauren said before, we hear from clients all the time. Oh, I'm a great sleeper. And then we look at, you know, an aura ring, biostrap, muse, something like that. And we look at their sleep data and 
they're getting minimal deep sleep. They're having all these wakefulness periods throughout the night. Uh, maybe their oxygen is dropping, signaling potentially they have sleep apnea and they have no idea. There's just so much we can learn from sleep data that I think everyone needs to get that because you know we know, and I'm sure everyone listening knows how important sleep is, right? It's setting you up for the day for you know all kinds of brain function, energy. It's controlling your hormones that are also going to impact how you eat that day. So we could go on and on about sleep, but I think if you're not tracking it, you just don't know. You don't know. And then it's fun over time to see, well, what impacts different things? What increases or decreases my sleep latency, how long it takes to fall asleep or the efficiency. So it's not just the amount of hours in bed, but how many hours are you actually sleeping? Because again, clients will say, oh, I get, I go to bed at 10 and I wake up at six. I got eight hours of sleep. I'm like, that would be magical if you actually got eight <laughs> hours. I would be impressed. You have to teach me something. Seven hours and 45 minutes. Okay. We're getting there. That's, that's still pretty good. But time in bed is not the same as time asleep. And most research they, you know, they estimate we need eight hours of sleep, eight hours of sleep, not eight hours in bed. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we could go down the rabbit hole of sleep, but I think get something like an aura ring or bio strap, you know, the, the aura ring, it, it does say REM sleep, but we know that's not super accurate, but I still think we can learn a lot from the trends of REM sleep. And we know that like alcohol decreases time in REM sleep. So say you see five minutes of REM sleep one night versus two hours of REM sleep the next night. Doesn't mean you had only five minutes of REM. It's potent, you potentially had more, but there was a drastic change. You did something different that caused that variation. What did you do different? Take notes, keep it in a journal. You can learn a lot that way. Yeah. So that's very, very interesting. And obviously connecting back to heart rate variability, HRV, all of those quantification tools really rely heavily on HRV, deep sleep or REM and latency, all of those things. And normally they calculate them into one or two grades, right? Like they give you a readiness scale or something equivalent to that to kind of give you something that you can that you can use for your next day and really maybe get one score, which then you can, you know, you can kind of contrast with different things that you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, And I I think those scores are really helpful for someone that doesn't want to do a deep dive on all the data. Like don't feel the need to do that. You could literally wake up and just say, what was my sleep score and my recovery or readiness score? Just look at those two numbers and you can cater your day around that. Hopefully do you do a harder workout? Do you go for a walk? Do you take a nap? You know, things like that. But for us as data nerds, we like to look at all the back end stuff. Like, why did I get that score? But that's totally a personal thing. Definitely. So that's, that's about sleep. And obviously if we're talking about sleep, there are things, there are more and more popular things that we can do in order to affect sleep, whether it's making sure we get the right sunlight in the morning, making sure that we do not get a lot of blue light you know, into our eyes later in the day. I see uh, you, Renee, you're wearing your uh, blue blocking glasses. So obviously that is one of the things that people do, lowering temperature at night, uh, mouth taping, which which I'm beginning to be a, like a big fan of. So we can do a lot of things and, and see how they, they interact with, with our sleep. So, and, and that is, and there are amazing book, books about it. Uh, Matt Walker has a great book. So Okay, sleep obviously is understandable. What else can people use to measure their health and kind of interact with on an ongoing basis to improve their health? My favorite is a continuous glucose monitor, a CGM. Mm-hmm. 
These are becoming more widely available for a healthy non-diabetic population as a means to prevent diabetes, because we know the trend towards diabetes, especially in this country, is just increasing quite quickly, <laughs> too quickly. So prevention obviously is, is the next step. And the CGMs, which most people are getting, I'll say a, a big motivation is weight loss. A lot of yeah. it is curiosity to optimize. But what people don't realize when they put these things on is that it's not just about food. It's about lifestyle 24-7. So we can see how mental and emotional wellness is affecting your glucose, how sleep is affecting your glucose. Of course, food, macronutrients, ratios, timing of food, but stress, exercise, hydration, environmental toxins. This is crazy, but I've seen wild changes when people get amalgam fillings, mercury out of their mouths, like glucose stabilizes pretty fast. So I think it's such an interesting experiment because again, like our conscious mind doesn't let us feel a lot of these things. So most people will feel when they are hypoglycemic, right? That mm -hmm. it's kind of like trendy to be like, oh, I, my blood sugar is dropping low. I better have a snack on hand or I can't go this many hours. We know what that feels like. Yeah. I don't find a lot of people know what it feels like to be hyperglycemic. And so the CGM can be really, really revealing to see these excursions that are out of the realm of, you know, a, a stabilized, stable blood sugar. So too much variability, too many excursions can reveal foods that maybe we should optimize exercise that we should optimize stress levels. We should optimize stress. It's just, it is such an amazing microscope. And I, I think the biggest takeaway again, is that it's not just about food. It's for me, it's a continuous lifestyle monitor. Yeah. Not just the food. Interesting. So, you know, just to concentrate a little bit about food, because obviously I'm a man, I, a lot of the, I have a bias every, you know, when I, I deal with, with, uh, with, uh, health optimization, biohacking, it's through a lens of, 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 of a male. Right. And a lot of the times when there is a discussion about something like, let's say time restricted eating or intermittent fasting, the major literature doesn't really differentiate between ma males and females. And do you have any, any opinions about that? Do you do intermittent fasting? How do you do it? What are your opinions about that? So, do you want to jump in? Sure. I, I mean, I'll just say basically that fasting is a stressor. And so we always need to keep in mind that there is a, a spectrum of stress. There's you stress, positive stress, distress would be negative stress. Each person has their own. I like, we like to say like stress bucket. So if you're adding a stressor to your life and food can be a stressor, exercise can be a stressor, not eating can be a stressor. You need to consider what your personal stress load is. So then when we get to the conversation of men versus women, I think there are so many confounding variables. The research hasn't even begun to touch on all mm -hmm. of these possibilities, especially with women, because they just generally tend to be a little bit harder to study with the menstrual cycle. I think that women can fast, but I'll just say there's a million variables and we can kind of dip into different scenarios and larger categories. But I do believe in some kind of fasting. I think we were meant ancestrally to fast and have rest for our digestive system, for our insulin or glucose. We're not meant to be eating 24 seven and just the basic like circadian fast 12, 12 is not difficult. Like we should all yeah. be doing that at minimum, but yeah, it's quite a broad conversation. So. I'll let Renee jump in. Yeah. I mean, yeah, obviously ditto to everything you said. I mean, personally, I find just restricting my food intake to, you know, 
at least a 12 hour window um, hopefully maybe a 10 hour window. That way I'm fasting 12 to 14 hours overnight seems to work really well for me. I find that I can maybe eat a little bit more as long as I compress it into that feeding window. And it's shocking how many people are not doing this. I actually read a study yesterday where they were looking at if time-restricted eating or time-restricted feeding could impact cardiometabolic things, uh, weight loss, many different factors, hormones. And the average person was fasting seven hours wow. overnight. Wow. It was the average. Wow. And they didn't know it right away because based off of questionnaires, people were like, oh yeah, I eat dinner at seven. I eat breakfast at seven. That's 12 hours. But then when they actually were watching them, people are nibbling on something at 11 o'clock before they go to bed. Oh, wake yeah. up at it's 6 always a snack in there. Always a snack in there. And then 6 a.m. they're putting cream and sugar in their coffee. That that counts, right? So I think just being more aware of are you actually getting this 12-hour break? And again, if you want to call it fasting or time-restricted eating, either one, but 12 hours, I think, is the minimum everyone needs. Your GI tract just needs a break overnight. And then, yeah, if you can handle a little bit more stress, maybe you try that 24-hour fast on a Saturday where you're out hiking with your family in nature, not running to the office and stressed out in meetings all day. Like That's not the time to do it. You know, maybe even just something that's easy to digest, like a protein shake in the morning if you're running out the door, but fasting is not always the best. And then also where you are in your life cycle as a woman, right? We see more menopausal women or postmenopausal. They can fast potentially maybe 16 hours a day. Lauren and I see that a lot with clients. So you really got to take that into consideration. And that's why tracking your monthly cycle can be really helpful too, because based off of hormone production and how that flows through the month, you might be able to fast longer some days while other days you need some more complex carbs into your diet. And that's where, again, the aura ring or biostrap can be really helpful because it's taking your body temperature and it's telling you exactly where you are in your cycle. Or if you don't have a gadget like that, just download an app, please. Ladies always know what day of your cycle it is. Always. Yeah, know. That that's actually something that I've been seeing a lot of uh, maybe our kind of niche science going to is that just matching health decisions with where, where are, is a woman specifically on her cycle. And I think it's very, very interesting. That's exactly, for example, something that in the last year I've only been, you know, it's, it's only been in my, in my consciousness, you know, where health decisions according to the cycle, because obviously men are more like circadian based, right? Our cycle is pretty much equal every day. And mm-hmm. we just need to make sure we're matching it to what time of day it is. And a woman has a, a lunar cycle where, they go through different phases throughout their month, uh, luteal phase, what, whatever that may be, and making sure that it is concurrent with that. And one of the major things that, that you know, having a life partner, which you, you guys know, uh, you ladies know her, and uh, kind of, you know, being the, the person that all the time wants to go and train and, and go to the gym every day, kind of tr- getting that perspective into it. Oh, you know, that's, you know, my first day or second day of, of my period. That's, I, I don't want to ex- expend a lot of energy right now. That it was something that was a big, like aha moment for me. So do you yeah. ladies have, uh, do you just train every day? Never mind what do you go through, you know, different cycles in your training? Oh yeah. 
the month is vastly different every single day. So I'm day 15 right now, which is like my warrior woman phase. So increased protein. I'm trying to get in all my intense workouts. And you know what? It doesn't always line up that way. This day last month, I was really tired. Like I was not ready for higher intensity workouts. So I think there's also like a little bit of grace that you have to give yourself if it doesn't line up perfectly. Like it's not black and white. Everything is a spectrum, but I do try to ramp up my higher intensity exercise right before ovulation, the week before my period, I really start to ramp down the intensity, but mostly listen to my body. So yes, very drastic changes. And I think the most important part is listening to your body and learning to say no, especially if you have a partner that's like, let's go to CrossFit. You're like, <laughs> well, I am on day two. This is not going to go well. And just being okay with that. So like being very clear in that communication, I think just as a female should know what day she's on, your partner should also know. And Mm -hmm. I think that just makes everything a little bit easier because the teamwork is inherent and just the understanding. So then you don't have to explain yourself like, Mm -hmm. oh, oh, you're tired. Okay. It's like, no, this is science. Leave me alone. (laughs) I'm going to do yoga today. And that's exactly Mm -hmm. what my body needs. But, you know, all of us, we do have our also our psyche to to deal with. Obviously, we can look around us. A lot of people are lacking the motivation in general to train, right? Mm-hmm. Are you finding that being more in tune with your, or being more in tune, I mean, also, you know, knowing what your day in the cycle means, does it push you sometimes to like give you motivation to train? Because, you know, that's your time of the month to get those, to get those, you know, high intensity workouts in the bank. Or do you find that it's more challenging because you know of times that are, that you need to lower down the intensity? I think it's more motivating and empowering. Like for example, you know, around week two ish of your cycle, we know that we can gain muscle easier. So in my mind, when I go to the gym, I'm like, yeah, give me those 25 pound dumbbells. Like, cause I know I'm going to see the results faster than day one of my cycle, lifting that same weight. Uh, maybe not going to see as big of an impact. So I use that as an empowering thing. And also week one of my cycle, I'm like, I'm going to walk around my neighborhood a lot. Like that walking is my jam. I'm not going to go do a high intensity interval training and I'm going to feel good about it. And yeah, I think if women can lean into it and think of it as a superpower, it can be more empowering and motivating. Even as something as simple as, you know, right before day one of our period, women say all the time, I'm craving carbs. I want chocolate. Um, there's a lot of shame around that. And, but we need some carbs. So maybe you go get like a sweet potato or some butternut squash, something that would fulfill that craving and fulfill the necessary carbs we need for the hormone production that week, instead of laying on the couch and feeling bad about ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it just keeps thinking things interesting. I know not everyone is like this, but I don't want to do the same thing or eat the same thing every day of the month. And so I inherently have variability and diversity based on my cycle. So I think it just keeps it interesting. It's like, Oh, okay. This week is something different. So I, I never really get bored, but sure. For people that have a little less motivation, I can understand that leaning into the cycle thinking could be frustrating. Say you're just really busy and you miss that warrior woman phase. And the last week of your cycle, you're like, well, I finally have time to work out. Okay. You're not going to ruin everything. You're not going to ruin your health. If you, if you do one or two heavier, more intense workouts, like it's okay. Knowing that it's on a spectrum, like you should still get it in when you can. So I think in some ways, like biohacking can almost feel like 
more restrictive because you're like trying to do everything right. But I think that the takeaway is like, it's a spectrum. One, one day is not going to ruin everything. Just you have month after month to keep this a practice and know that it's never going to be perfect and that's okay. Yeah, I agree. I think if we look at everything, I love, I love the book atomic habits. Oh yeah. So good. So good. I think, you know, for, for the uh, challenging times where, you know, someone kind of talks to you and says, and I bet you get you ladies get it way more than I do. Uh, Okay. I'm ready to be healthy. Let's sit down and, you know, just make sure you tell me everything that's involved in being healthy. And I'm going to change my life from now on, which (laughs) tell me what to do. Exactly. Tell me what to do. And it's going to probably take half an hour. And then I'm going to know what to do for the rest of my life, which is (laughs) normally a very difficult explanation to or very difficult expectation to fulfill. But I think that book is is my shortcut to, to having people you know, leading a healthy lifestyle, because if you put everything in the context of habits, knowing that it doesn't matter if you did, like, if you are not ready for your high intensity interval training slash CrossFit and setting up new records in the gym, if you just look at whatever you're doing right now is first of all, like setting a habit of kind of gauging how you feel and making sure that this is, you know, your intuition, intuition is correct. And on the other hand, making sure you're building a habit of going every day that whether it's a gym or eating healthy or whatever that is, and kind of tying those two together, month, month to month or day to day, things are becoming much, much, much easier. And that also allows us to, as, as we all kind of said in the beginning of the podcast, it allows us to be curious and brave, right? If we succeed in you know, building habits, we know habits are cumulative. And when we start something, it might be very difficult. But by, you know, month two, three, four, it's, it's now much easier and being and and becomes part of your identity, we're ready to take on ourselves, maybe something a little bit more daunt. Right? So yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I think confidence is so important. That's why like, Renee and I, we always meet the client where they're at, but also if we're setting up goals, they want to be reasonable for you. They, they need to be attainable and we don't need to achieve milestones tomorrow, but we can inch our way towards these goals. And I think if you pick that one thing that is achievable, then you build that confidence to then add the next thing at the next thing. Cause a lot of people just, I think, don't believe that they can truly change. And so changing that mindset is step number one, I think. I agree. And yeah. part of that. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, um, it, BJ Fogg talks a lot about, you know, the tiny celebrations with the new habits is you do want, like Lawrence said, you want that confidence and you want to feel like, oh, I can change. So you do want to reward, reward yourself. You know, maybe after dinner you go for a 20 minute walk. I'm not saying come home and reward yourself with a bowl of ice cream, like find a healthy way to reward yourself so that you're telling your brain Hey, I did that healthy habit. I am successful. I am confident about it. And over time, yeah, it's amazing what that can do long term. Yeah. yeah. Or Definitely. maybe just say thank you when someone else recognizes a change in you because we don't always see it in ourselves. It's usually a partner, a family member, a friend. And that's great. We we need that outside perspective. And so if you get that compliment, you know, I think a lot of us are wired to be like, oh, or make an excuse or, you know, not accept it. Like say thank you. Cause that could be a celebration of the win. Just accept it and say thank you. And I think your sub- subconscious is going to 
you know, digest that. And the next time it's going to be easier. Yeah. And if that would be digested, I think it's the ultimate win, right? Like just a compliment can really unlock a new level of confidence that, that you cannot really reach on your own. Unfortunately, like you need the environment to recognize what, what the, the change in you or the process that you're going through. And that sometimes is a little bit difficult. Obviously changes also, you know, our environment, if they're not going through the same changes, normally you are reminding them what they're not doing, right? Yeah. Uh, if you're mm-hmm. losing weight or if you're, you're no, you know, your, your skin's becoming healthier or uh, I don't know, you can you just fill in the blank and someone else around you is not going through the same journey. A lot of the time, what's going to come out of their mouth is whatever their ego is telling them that kind of making sure that they don't feel too bad and they're mm-hmm. just spewing it out. So if you are getting that, you know, recognition from the environment, you have to make sure you're, you're absorbing it in. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We can't do this alone. So always having <laughs> a community that supports you. I think if you're going to embark on any change in your health and wellness journey, like make sure you have a support system for sure. Yeah. I, I understand that can be so triggering for people. Yeah, You're losing weight. So I'm going to make you feel really bad about eating that healthy yeah. meal. Why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Join Your me. face don't look healthy. <laughs> yeah. You know, you should gain some weight, dude. I was 350 pounds and I am 210 now. So, but yes. And I think part of building that virtual or not virtual, but that surround sound that, that kind of, you know, points you to the right direction is getting good information diet, right? Making sure that whatever you're looking at in either in the news, social media, whatever that is, is conducive with the path you want to take in life. And obviously, I couldn't recommend uh, following you ladies more. I feel like you are uh, a living example to how uh, motivated, uh, healthy women and people in general should should be Thank living you. their lives. So kind of kind of to wrap it up a little bit and, and have, you know, setting people on a journey together with you, what would be the best way to follow you in general? you know, feed ourselves with, with the diet that consists of the information you put out and how can people reach out to you if they do need that guidance, which you provide so, so well. Yeah. Well, you can uh, follow us on Instagram. I would say that's where we're the most active biohacker Mm -hmm. underscore babes. You can DM us on there. We, Lauren and I are always checking the messages and responding. It is us on there. Um, also my personal page on Instagram is Renee Bells, B-E-L-Z. And Lauren has her personal page too, Lauren underscore Sambatero. Nice long one for you. And then our website is <laughs> yeah, the biohackerbabes.com. If you want to learn more about what we're doing and reach out to us. Yeah. We'd love to connect with other people and help you on your health journey. Obviously also an awesome podcast that, uh, that, uh, it's called biohacker babes and that is highly recommended. So obviously we're going to have all the links, the bottom of the, of the podcast. But, uh, again, I really want to thank you ladies for, for coming on the podcast. I feel that you are a living example of, of what biohacking is. Right. And, and that's kind of, you know, that, cause I tell you that often off air, but that is, uh, an inspiration. I would like to give a gift to anyone who's listening, just, just to try and be more like, uh, Lauren and Renee. So, so thank you very much for, for 
blessing us with your presence and we're going to talk. Thank, Thank you so much. much. It's always great <laughs> chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.